0: Job 35 Elihu spake moreover and said Thinkest thou this to be right that thou saidst my righteousness is more than God's for thou saidst what advantage will it be unto thee and what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin I will answer thee and thy companions with thee look unto the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than thou if thou sinnest What doest thou against him? Or if thy righteousnesses be multiplied, transgressions rather, be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Well, we've come to Job chapter 25 in our studies In this marvellous book of Job and just this chapter here this evening, perhaps the shortest amount of verses we've looked at for a while, which is 16 verses in Job chapter 35. Now Elihu, younger than the three comforters, and we reckon younger than Job also, had come as a preacher to all of them and spake only of what he had by revelation. Not tradition, not human philosophy, but the word of God he brings to them, as, of course, all preachers ought. Well, he was fearless in his denouncement of Job, who had thought too much of his own personal righteousness. And uh, here, in verse 2, when uh, Elihu says, Think, is thou this to be right, that you have said, my righteousness is more than God's? Well, Elihu says to Job, uh, and uh, he said, uh, Not that Job... Uh, had actually said that he thought he was more holy than God, of course not, but that uh, he, uh, Job had felt so ill-treated of God that Job was implying that in this circumstance Job was more upright than God. (laughs) Well, terrible, And, uh, and that he was saying God was being so unfair, something we might all be guilty of on occasion, thinking God had not acted towards us rightly. So in that sense we are better and of course that is tantamount to blasphemy. And Elihu was also very strong in rebuke of the comforters, Job's free friends, because they did not understand or believe in Job's assertion of justification by faith. In chapter 34 we saw that Elihu had taken Job to task for saying things in his depression That he knew Job didn't really believe in his heart of hearts. Look there, chapter 34 and verse 9. For uh, Job has said said, or implied, It profiteth a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. Indeed, if Job has complained of God being unjust, well that was terrible, it was bad enough to accuse civil dignitaries of such things, as in 34 and verse 18. Is it fit to say to a king, even if it's not the most wonderful of kings, is it fit to say to the ruler, thou art wicked, and to princes, ye are ungodly? Well, if it's not fit to say it to a prince or to a king, surely not to God. No, Job had, verse 30, uh, chapter 34 and verse 35, Job had spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom and his pride needed to be abased because Job was, chapter 34 and verse 37, he was in rebellion and he was clapping his hands among us as if he was triumphing, as if he had said, yes, I'm absolutely right. And he multiplied his words against God. But nonetheless, Elihu was seeking to justify Job's doctrinal and spiritual standing. And in chapter 35, Elihu is going to deal with Job's greatest problem at the moment. Hadn't always been his problem, but it was a problem now. Now that he'd got into this discussion with the friends, now that he had complained so much to God, well, this was now Job's greatest problem uh, in the midst of all that had come upon him. Uh, I'll just let you know what that is in a moment. Well, a superficial look at the book of Job might have us listing Job's great problems as, of course, the loss of his family and, of course, the loss of his wealth, which was tremendous, and, of course, his great loss of health, this horrible disease that Satan had smitten him with and and, uh, in which he thought he was soon going to die. But, in fact, Job could have handled all these things. Many of the Lord's people have. In fact, the first chapters of the book of Job showed that he did cope very well with those tremendous problems. I'm not sure that we would, but he did. Even his wife, trying to get him to give up, well, he censured her, and he held on magnificently to his beliefs. His faith was intact. Even when he was on the downhill, scraping his poor, chafed shin with uh, uh, skin with um, a piece of pot Wow. Well, there was here a deeper spiritual problem that Job had, and it is a problem I believe that we all experience, even if we do not share Job's catastrophes. And it's this: He had lost his felt communion with God. His God now seemed to be far away. It seemed to him that praying was useless. He detected no answer. He'd lost all his joy. That joy that he once knew when he walked with his God and felt God's closeness, he felt alone. He felt deserted. This was, in fact, a far greater loss to Job than the well-known losses that he experienced. It was as if God had turned his face from him. And no matter what Job did, he just could not seem to feel in his own soul that God was alongside him in his struggles and in his agony. Now we all experience these things from time to time, so we will be most interested to know how Elihu ministers to Job in this part of his speech in chapter 35 of this unique book. And indeed, I don't reckon that there's anywhere else in the Bible that you come across such detail of this problem that Job had... and uh, Elihu spelling it out to him. So we wouldn't do without this chapter... so anyone that dismisses Elihu as just being repetitive... uh, repeating what the friends had said... well we can't go along with that. We see this as amazing, powerful preaching... personal preaching to a spiritual man... and we certainly still need that. Well in this chapter... Elihu gives Job six reasons for Job's loss of felt fellowship with his Lord. And it is in understanding these reasons that will be greatly helped as well. <clears throat> and the first reason for his felt loss of fellowship, of communion with God, is that Job harboured a sense of grievance. You see, Job had began to think that he was pretty much perfect when it came to holiness and walking with his God. He had striven so hard to do all that, Uh, might please his God, his worship, his testimony, his morals, his heart even, and his thinking, all were sharpened to a very great extent. So that indeed, Job was a great man of faith, one that feared God and shunned evil. He was a spiritual man. No doubt about that. He had the praise of God himself in those early chapters. He was set for the very devil's challenge as to why Job lived for God as he did. There's no doubting Job's spiritual stature. He was far greater, of course, than any of us. <clears throat> but the very vast progress that Job had made in spiritual things became a snare to him in this situation. He thought himself to be good. He trusted he did all things well. And he expected God to be pleased with him. Well, Not in a gross way, like the Pharisees of our Lord's Day, but there was a hint of this. There was creeping up on him, and it had taken hold, this kind of thinking, and it was all aggravated, of course, by the comforter's public judgment of him, that really he was secretly wicked, and a very great hypocrite, so that Job felt he had to deny that, so that in all this, together with the highly significant physical. And mental pain that he was suffering through his great losses, he began to feel what good had it done him to try to be holy there in verses two and three. Well, Job, you've been thinking, well, my righteousness is more than God's. God's I'm more just in this situation than God is. He's not been fair with me. For you said verse 3, what advantage will it be to me? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? If I be holy? You see, he felt the grievance against God. It was like this. Job thought that he had done so well. So why was God treating him like this? It was all so unfair. And we all know that if we have a grievance against anyone, well, it's that that keeps us apart from that person. We hardly are going to keep close to someone that we hold a grudge against. And this is frighteningly true, and uh, if we feel that in any way with our God, that we have some sort of grievance against him, then it will affect our fellowship, our communion with the Lord, our walk with him. Now, we might think, well, I could never think that of my God, my Saviour. But don't be so sure, this is Job that we're talking about, a very great saint. If you go through a period when the Lord seems so far away, ask yourself, Am I harbouring a grievance against my God? Is there something I want and he won't give it to me? Is there a problem that I need solved but he doesn't seem to help me? Have we been disappointed over something and uh, we think, well, God does not seem to have helped me in this great trouble of mine. We can be sure that such thinking, such grievance will make us lose our felt communion with the Lord. Job thought here in verse 3, well, what advantage is it to me? What profit shall I have if I be holy and cleansed from my sin? Job thought that all his efforts to be holy brought no advantage, no reward to him. In fact, the opposite. He had only grief and loss and scorn from his friends. But such a grievance took away his communion with the Lord. If we harbour any ill feeling that we know deep down is against the Lord and his providence towards us, it can only keep us apart from our God. Well, there's a grievance that causes trouble in our walk with the Lord. Secondly, the next thing in this sermon of Elihu is about Job's big problem of a loss of fellowship with his God, and it was Job's somewhat selfish attitude. What? (laughs) Can we call Job selfish? Well, let's look. And if we think, hey, that's a bit hard on Job, well, we have to say that all that happens to Job in this book that is recorded here is to refine him. When we speak about him being selfish here, that's not gross selfishness like the unbeliever. Of course not. But for a saint, a spiritual man, a man of God, even a hint Of selfishness is something the Lord would train out of us and teach us to be holy for the Lord and not for ourselves. Here in verses 4 to 7, we see that Job was thinking and asking, What is God doing for me? rather than what he should have been thinking and asking, What am I doing for the Lord? well now in verses 6 and 7 although I'll read verse 4 and 5 first I will answer thee and thy companions with thee, so Job's going to bring an answer to these things, look to the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than thou lift up your perspective and see now important things and see that the Lord is above all these things verse 6, if you sin Job what do you do against him you can't touch him with any evil you can't touch the Lord, the creator uh, the transcendent God with your sin it doesn't touch him one tiny bit or if thy transgressions be multiplied what doest thou unto him nothing at all of course you can't touch God he is absolutely pure and holy verse 7 if you be righteous what do you give him or what receiveth he of thy hand if you are holy what a difference does it make to him if you are holy how does it touch his character and his thinking in any way What is Elihu saying here? Elihu shows Job that he has been thinking something like this. For Elihu to describe the situation that we can do nothing for God, we cannot add to him or his glory, he needs nothing of us. What we do, even by way of goodness, doesn't affect his being, even in the slightest. This is all said in the context of Elihu knowing that Job felt that he had done so much for God. And almost that God ought to be grateful for the way that Job was living his life, which, of course, is utterly ridiculous. I have done so much for God, Job was thinking. Isn't it about time he did something for me? To Job, it all seemed to be going one way. All for God and nothing for him. And Elihu shows him the ridiculous uh, thinking that is going on there. He had been righteous, thought Job, but God had let him down. Now, Elihu uh, says here in verse 6, Job, if you sin, what do you do against him? You cannot do God any harm. But also, verse 7, any goodness that you have, Job, well, it doesn't advance God in any way. It doesn't enhance his glory or his being. It comes from God anyway, any advance that you make. And verse 8... Thy wickedness may hurt a man, as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man, so that if you're wicked to others, well, of course it's going to hurt them. And if you're good to other people, well, it may do them good as well. Of course, man, of course your life affects other people around you. But, Job, however you act, good or bad, only affects man, only hurts or profits those around you. And the point is this, Job, you think you've done so much for God by your righteous life and your good deeds and moral uprightness and witness of his grace, you think that you've done so much for God, but the truth is that what you have done is not really as great as you think. Just as our Saviour said, after all that we do for the Saviour, we are to say to ourselves, we are to pronounce to ourselves that we are unprofitable servants. And even what Job had done was God working through him, Now, we also can be selfish like that and say, look, Lord, at what I've done. Won't you do something for me? But we can see that this is all too silly for words. Well, such a feeling will make you lose your felt sense of communion with God. If we ever get to thinking, is it not about time that God did something for me, something that I want? Things must be in a bad way with us. If we're thinking like that, we must get back to the cross. And we must never again think of uh, the Lord not doing much for us. (laughs) terrible for a believer to say and think such a thing. And this is a warning to spiritual people, even say those who truly want to see a church grow and flourish. And we think, Lord, we've done all this, all this hard work, and we've prayed all these years, and we've worked all this time, and we've gathered in the children, and we've spoken in the open air. Lord, we've done all this. Can we not have an increase? Can we not now see some blessing? Well, such thinking is selfish and really silly. We are only thinking of ourselves and our feelings. Of course we want to establish a strong gospel church, but we will never do that thinking, why won't the Lord give it to us after all that we have done? It will harm us spiritually. We can be sure of that, that sort of selfish thinking. Third, and here is another thing that will inhibit our communion with the Lord, and it was a great problem for Job in his present circumstances. And it was this, complaining rather than praying. And here we have in verses 9 to 11 some rather difficult words. In fact, the rest of this chapter has a difficult word in, but we will come to an understanding of it. Look here in verse 9. By reason of the multitude of oppressions, they make the oppressed to cry. They cry out by reason of the arm of the mighty, to cry, to cry out, well, to cry out in complaint is what uh, Elihu means, but not sincerely praying to God. Verse 10, but none saith, where is God, my maker, who giveth songs in the night? Verse 9, it's most natural for people, even the Lord's people, to cry out in affliction, of course, and in pain, of course. But with Job, it was not so much a cry uh, to be sustained and to be helped. But why, Lord? This is what's come through all these previous chapters. Why, Lord? Why should I have to suffer like this when I've been so good, when I've always sought to please thee? It was a complaint. And verse 10, this is an absence of of a reverent appeal to God. The complainer, says Elihu, does not pray humbly. He doesn't pray humbly like this and say, where is God my maker in all my trouble to help me and to strengthen me? Where is the God that blesses so that I may rejoice and sing sacred songs as I lay down to sleep at night because of all his goodness to me all the day? Well, Job wasn't praying humbly like that. It was all complaint. Well, verse 11, the beasts and the birds know a great deal who teacheth us more than the beasts of the earth and maketh us wiser than the fowls of heaven well, they know how to gather their food and seek shelter they're not in a position to complain they have no rational minds to work out what God does for them they in their animal way live, can we say, trusting that they know where their next meal is coming from but man knows so much more God teaches us more and the believer even more that God is our maker and redeemer and friend and all things work together for our ultimate spiritual good. And knowing that, we should never complain, but pray humbly for help. Where art thou, Lord, my maker and the one who has blessed me in so many ways, certainly in my soul's salvation? Come to me again that I may rejoice and sing praise unto thee as thou dost answer me in my great need. It may well be that some of our times of personal prayer can hardly be said to be real prayer at all, but just complaint, as it was here with Job. And of course, if we're complaining rather than praying, we cannot wonder that God feels so far away. This is a call up to examine our praying. Is it real prayer? Is it a humble call to our maker and saviour, or just pure complaint? And fourth. Why was Job so far off from God, so lacking in communion with his God? Well, what he did pray was prayed in a proud fashion. Look here, verses 12 and 13. There they cry, but none giveth answer because of the pride of evil man. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. What Job thought as an address to the Almighty in the midst of all his troubles was really rather proud and empty of spiritual content. Now when we speak of pride in men like Job, we have to be very careful. It's so true of the unbeliever, if you look at uh, there in verses 12 and 13, you could preach on those two verses and show how God doesn't hear the prayer of the unbeliever until they come and repent of their sin. You could say this of the unbeliever, they cry, none giveth answer. God doesn't answer them because of the pride of evil man. Surely God will not hear vanity, uh, words that are a waste of time. Neither will the Almighty regard it. You can see that's absolutely applicable to the unbeliever and uh, to ordinary men. God will not hear them. But with us, the Lord's people, and with even a great saint like Job, there most certainly can enter into our prayers and into our thinking pride. It is still our chief enemy. And if anything it will make any progress in spiritual things, well, uh, if we do make any progress in that way, the devil will soon have us thinking, haven't we done well? But it can be very hidden, this pride of the heart, and it is an evil. Job was not an evil man, of course not. But the pride of the Christian believer is as the pride of evil men. It's the same thing. It's the same sin. And if our prayers, like Job's, are the sort of prayers that have a hint of, should not God do this for me? Have I not earned by my life and sacrifice that God should do this and he should do that for me? And I only speak of a hint of this, a tendency at most. God forbid that we should approach the throne of grace like the proud Pharisees of old. But where there is even a hint, an ounce of such thinking, there's not much hope of an answer as we had there in verse 12. God may not even regard it if we have sin in our heart it sets up a barrier between us and our God we must be totally sincere in our prayers oh this is so hard for us our prayers must be loaded with repentance and dependence and trust in the Lord we cannot come to the Lord with presumption and not only will God not regard such prayer and not answer it he will not regard us If we do it often enough and there shall be a a, a regretting of the loss of the the Lord's felt presence. We need to pray to the Lord earnestly to uh, sanctify even our praying as we come to him. Seeking his blessing and help. I remember our late sister often here asking the Lord to forgive our very prayers. Well she understood this. Well the fifth thing is this. He prayed without trusting. He prayed really without faith. And that's why God was aloof from him. Verse 14. Although thou sayest thou shalt not see him, yet judgment or justice is before him. Therefore, trust thou in him. So often the Lord is good to us and we feel him close. But also he tests us. Do we still believe him and trust him when we cannot feel him? When we we do not see him, as it says in verse 14, that you say you do not see him. That is, sense him, feel him. Yet judgment or justice is before him. Therefore trust him, wait for him. Trust that in the end he will do what is right. Of course, you must believe that Job, says Elihu. if we find that we not, uh, do not have trusting faith in our prayer in times of darkness, we must pull ourselves together. We must believe that he is for us, that he will act for us in our best interests. And we may have to wait and he wants to see that faith. But so often, as with Job here, we give up. We think, what's the use? Our trust runs so low. We have no thought that the Lord is testing us and proving even to Satan that we are the Lord's and we'll trust our God though he slay us. So often we give up and with that it may be a long time before a felt sense of the presence of God returns to us. And lastly, uh, in this chapter, how shall we lose fellowship with our God? Verse 15, and these are very difficult words. But now, because is it not so? He hath visited in his anger, yet he knoweth it not in great extremity. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain. He multiplieth words without knowledge. Well, and how shall we lose fellowship with our God? Well, I'll try to paraphrase this verse 15. Because it is not so. Because God does not show you all you want to know, Job. Because you've been asking, tell me what this is all about, why do I deserve this? Because God doesn't uh, show you all you want to know, because it is not so. He has, in his anger, visited you. God is correcting you. He's chastening you. And we'll look at that in a moment. And yet uh, he knoweth, yet he knoweth it not, in great extremity. Job, in his extreme discomfort, cannot see that God, in love, is correcting him. Well, as I say, these words are difficult, but that's the idea. Be sure the chastening in this situation is not seen in Job's family loss, the physical loss. It's nothing to do with that. That's, of course what the comforters were saying. No, that's not what Elihu's talking about. But he was being chastened for spoiling his testimony before his friends and his open complaint of God so that now God seems so far away. And that was the chastening. The chastening of Job here in his extremity here when God visits him with his anger was that he now had lost that felt sense of the presence of God. Job had not thought of that as a possibility. The chastening was a loss of fellowship. Have you overlooked the fact, Job, says Elihu, that you uh, are being extremely foolish in your thinking, so that God has to deal with you in uh, judgment, in chastening, so as to bring you back? Well, the wording, as I say, is very difficult, but the lesson is very clear, at least. If things do not go well for us, and we complain rather than at least accept that the Lord may be teaching us a hard lesson if we will not countenance such a thing that God is sorting us out then coming back to a close communion with the Lord will be a hard matter so with Job these words seem to mean that Job had not taken account of the fact that God might be chastening him he had visited him in his anger because his witness had been spoiled and God was dealing with Job's folly And all in love, of course, as we know, chastening is towards his people, all to advance Job spiritually. The trouble with Job was that he rather thought too much of his believing stand to think that there could be a possibility. And so God seemed so far away and he didn't realise even that he was being chastened. If only we could see that in the most difficult and depressing and cold of situations, God is probably nearer to us than at any other time, if we can speak in those sort of terms. But so often we do not see these things, but any one of them may make our God to seem far away. As we see in this chapter, I'll just repeat the headings. If we hold a grievance against him, well, he'll seem far away. If we have even a slightly selfish nature well, that will cause trouble between us and our walk with God. If we complain rather than pray sincerely, that will do it. If we pray proud, empty prayers, well, of course, the Lord cannot draw close to us. If we have a loss of faith and trust, especially in what God is doing, then, of course, he will not seem very close to us. And if we do not detect that the Lord may be chastening us, and of course, again, we won't learn that lesson and we won't be brought back quickly to the Lord. Well, <laughs> we will find it hard going on the Christian pathway and the Lord will seem to have hidden his face from us if any of these things uh, become part of our experience and we know that they jolly well do. Well, all of this is rather a downer on us, isn't it? But in chapters 36 and 37 next week, it's encouragement all the way. And uh, we have to say here that Elihu is a very great preacher and he deals with the heart sin of Job. And may the Lord deal with us also. Amen. Amen.